Well, as we continue in uh, the book of Romans, uh, we're, we're into chapter 11 this morning, and uh, I want to read um, that passage from Romans 11. And uh, you can pull out your Bibles and follow along just to prepare our hearts for the teaching of God's Word. Romans 11, starting in verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bailed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Well, good morning, you clock setter backers, or uh, move them aheaders, and you onliners, uh, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. I have three years down there. Hope you're enjoying your new chairs, and uh, uh, glad you're with us. Um, Take your Bibles, and we're studying the book of Romans, and we're in Romans 9, 10, and 11, a really unique section of the book of Romans. But I want to start this morning in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to read a couple of verses there, starting at verse 5. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus has just uh, selected 12 disciples to follow him, to be his... Um, his team, and in verse 5 says, these 12 uh, Jesus sent out after instructing them, and this was his instruction. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost house, the lost sh uh, sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his instructions. That's Matthew 10. Now, go to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised. He is about to ascend into heaven. The end of his ministry, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. But to the 11 disciples, minus Judas, the 11 disciples, uh, 
proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, and yet some were doubtful. But Jesus came, and he spoke to them, and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Did you notice the difference? Matthew chapter 10, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Exclusively, go to the Israelites. The end of his ministry, before he ascends, Matthew 28, go to all the nations, inclusively. Uh, what changed? What happened between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28? Why the difference? Why the change? Um, well, in between was the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. In between was the crucifixion of Christ. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they turned him over to the Romans, and he was indeed crucified. Let me read to you, if you jump over to Matthew 21, the parable that um, Jesus gave in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Listen to this parable. Verse 33, Matthew 21, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard who put a wall around it and dug uh, a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he rented it out to vine growers, and then he went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. But the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same to them. Jesus is telling a parable about them, the Jewish people, the, the vine growers, the ones who were to keep the, the garden, uh, the vineyard, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling leadership of the day. And he sent his slaves, the owners did, to um, take care of things, to harvest, and they killed the prophets. That's who they were, the, the prophets of God. Verse 38, but when the, or verse 37, but afterward he sent his son to them. And they will respect my son, he said, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said to, one, uh, to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Verse 40 says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? And they said to him, well, he, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. And we'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper time. And Jesus said, didn't you ever read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Jesus is forewarning them. The nation of Israel. There's an end coming. You've rejected the Messiah. It'd be easy to conclude, I think, that when the Jewish people took their Messiah and handed him over to the Romans and he was crucified, they rejected him, that God said, you know, I've put up with you guys for centuries. 
um, I, I've had it. That was the last straw. I'm finished. Jewish people who reject their Messiah, didn't they lose their status as this chosen nation? These, these favored people? But as we just read in Romans chapter 11, Paul asks a very important question there in verse 1. I say then, has, not, has God not rejected his people? Has God cast away his people? And his answer there and very emphatically is, may it never be. Perish the thought. By no means. Absolutely not. For anyone to even suggest that Israel no longer remained God's chosen people, God's special people, was a preposterous thought. May it never be. Paul wrote those words over, over 30 years after the Jewish people rejected Jesus as Messiah. And yet still, 30 years later, as he, as he pens these words in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, has God rejected his people? In Paul's eyes, the Jewish people were still the people of God, the chosen people, the special people. Now, how could he say that? Well, he, in this passage, there are four proofs, four proofs of why Paul says the Jewish people are still the people of God. First of all, he points to himself, exhibit A. I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. I, too, have my heritage. I, I'm of the tribe of, of Benjamin. It's obvious that Paul is talking about ethnic Israel here. He's referring to his own ethnicity. I am, I am a Jew of Jews, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am an Israelite. And Paul is saying, God hasn't rejected me. He was on a road to Damascus to go kill Christians and, and Jesus showed up and revealed himself to him and the Apostle Paul got born again. Got into a right relationship with God and he accepted Jesus as his Messiah. Paul says, look at me. God hasn't rejected the Jews. Look at me. You know, a few years after we moved into this facility and we bought our grand piano, we had the privilege of having a, a world-renowned classical pianist come and, uh, and enthrall us with his uh, incredible uh, musical abilities on, on, you talk about tickling the ivory. His name was Sam Rotman. Um, Sam has traveled uh, around the world in, in the finest uh, uh, concert halls in Europe and he has gone to a grand piano and played by memory incredible pieces, works of art of the great scholars and the classicals of, uh, of the ages. And when several occasions we had Sam here to, to uh, uh, regale us, um, his virtuosity was, was amazing. But as we were equally enthralled with his musical abilities, it was his testimony that I think grabbed a lot of our hearts. For Sam grew up in an extremely religious Jewish home, 
but when he was studying classical piano at age 21, some friends of his, of his met with him and began to share who Jesus was. And when he was 21 years of age, Sam put his faith and trust in Jesus as his Messiah. Sam became a converted Jew, a messianic Jew, a, a, a follower of Jesus. I've got in my library uh, a great work uh, uh, by a, a man by the name of Alfred Edersheim, The Life and Times of Jesus Messiah. It's a classic work. I've got some Old Testament commentaries by a man by the name of Charles Feinberg. These were men who were Jews who put their trust in Jesus as Messiah. The Apostle Paul, Sam Rotman, Alfred Edersheim, many, many others, countless others. Paul is saying, has God rejected his people? Of course he hasn't. Proof number one, individuals like Paul himself. Second proof, there in verse 2, is God's work of foreknowing Israel. Verse 2, he reinforces what he's just said. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknow or foreknew. It's a very important term. We looked at it back when we were studying chapter 8. To foreknow is something far more than just knowing something ahead of time. Like God's omniscience, he knows what's going to happen ahead of time. But this word foreknowledge uh, it means much more than that. It has the idea of taking pleasure in someone, of of foreloving them. It has the idea of a personal relationship, of, of knowing, knowing someone intimately. Not just knowing what will happen, but knowing the people. God has not rejected the people that he has, that he has foreknown, the people that he has foreknown. In the Old Testament, this idea of knowledge is pregnant with meaning. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you, God said in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Intimate relationship with. Or in Amos chapter 3, he says of Israel, you only have I known of the, all the families of the earth. Come on, God. You know all the nations of the earth. But he says to Israel, you only have I known, known in that intimate way, that, that personal loving relationship. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it is said of uh, of uh, Adam, that he knew Eve, and she gave birth to Cain, intimate relationship with. God has not rejected the people that he has foreknown. Foreknowledge is more than foresight, it's for loving, and he entered into a loving relationship with Israel. God set his affections on this, this insignificant group of slaves that he redeemed out of the land of Egypt, and he set his love upon them, the unlovable Jews. And Israel became God's chosen people. And Paul is simply raising proof number two, God has not rejected his people because he has foreknown them. He has entered into a personal relationship with them. Here's the third proof. Last part of verse 2. Or do you not know what the Scripture says the third proof is the word of god itself and here he goes to a passage in the old testament and we're going to look at it in just a moment a little bit more detail but first kings chapter 18 and 19 the story of elijah on mount carmel 
You know, when the prophets of Baal and fire comes down from heaven and burns it up and all that stuff? He said, haven't you read that passage? Don't you know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to Elijah? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And in the same way, verse 5, there's also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's election of grace, according to God's gracious choice. In other words, what Paul is saying, proof number three, look at the scriptures. God has always spared a remnant, even in the darkest, most dismal time of Israel's history, when King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were, uh, Jezebel were reigning, and they were um, controlling all of Israel under Baal worship. And Elijah thought he was all alone, but he wasn't. God says there were 7,000 that had not bent the knee to worship Baal. Look at the word of God. In the same way, he says, there's a, there's a remnant in this present time. God could have ended his relationship with Israel back in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. I would have, but God didn't. Why? Because he does not reject the people that he foreknew that he had entered into a covenantal love relationship with. And the scriptures prove that out, that even in the darkness of Elijah's days, there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a fourth proof, and that is the very ways of God himself, the very character of God in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And all Paul is saying here is God is a gracious God. That's, it's part and parcel of, his, of who he is. Does Israel deserve the status of being God's chosen people? Of course not. No, they don't. But God is a gracious God. That's his nature. It's his character. God is a God of grace, and he will never extinguish his covenantal promises. Not because Israel deserves his love. They don't. But he's a God of grace. Even though this people is a disobedient and obstinate people, chapter 10, verse 21, the last verse in chapter 10, a disobedient and obstinate people, yet God has sovereignly chosen them and in his gracious election and his gracious choice, he has kept his covenantal promise through a remnant. Four proofs. Has God rejected the Jewish people? Perish the thought. But he raises the tension in his conclusion, starting in verse 7. But what then? <laughs> like, come on, what gives here? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And now he quotes two Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, but they see not. Ears to hear, but they hear not. Down to this very day. And then Psalm 69, a messianic psalm where David says, 
Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now we need to be careful here. For God, it says, hardened their heart. He gave them sleepy eyes, eyes of a stupor to not hear, to not see. God hardened Israel's heart. Why? Because they had hardened their heart against God. A disobedient and obstinate people. We saw that in the opening chapter of Romans, chapter 1, that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, and God gives them over all right, you want to you go that route? Have at it and suffer the full consequences of your sin. Take my prophets and kill them, I'll send more slaves, more prophets. They kill them too, I'll send my son. They put him on the, on the cross and they crucify him. And then God hardens their heart as if sealing that, that obstinate, disobedient heart you realize that there's been over 900 Nobel Prize winners awarded the history of that prize over 22 percent have been Jews one in five Nobel Prize winners have been Jews a brilliant people who do not follow Jesus as Messiah, yet when all the proof and the evidence is there. How do you explain that? Because God has hardened their heart. When they rejected the Messiah, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to not see and ears to not hear. He quotes from Psalm 69. I mentioned that that's a, that's a messianic psalm. Let me read a portion of it. Psalm 69, verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am sick, and I look, I look for sympathy, but there was none. I look for comforters, but I found none. These are the words of Jesus, the Messiah. Being rejected, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He says in verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink on the cross. Jesus refused. But then verse 22 says, May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. And may their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. We don't have time. Maybe later in the sermon I'll, I'll share it. The last 2,000 years of history of Judaism. Those words that we just read in Psalm 69 have been fulfilled over and over and over again. Will Israel continue in this state of, of hard-heartedness? 
Will there ever be a time when the Jewish people, as a national entity, turn to God? Will God ever pour out his favor upon his chosen people? Has God rejected his people? Now we're back to the opening question again that Paul is wrestling with. It would sure seem like it. It sure seems like they've been replaced by a spiritual entity called the church because those Jews, that remnant, uh, are being born again and, and they're in the body of Christ. It sure seems like God is done with Israel. And Paul says, perish the thought. Strike it from your thinking. Far from it. God has not rejected his people. May it never be. Let me read one other passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. And as I read it, just listen to the passion uh, as, as, as God writes this or declares it through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares Jehovah God, while I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers and the day that I brought them, uh, took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother. And they say, know the Lord for they will all know me from the Least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Thus says Jehovah God, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order to the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thus says this Lord, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Man, if the sun won't rise tomorrow morning, then you can be assured I'll have nothing to do with Israel. God has not rejected the people that he has put his love and affection upon. And though there is retribution for their sin, there's never rejection of them as a people. God is faithful to his promises. There may be perfectly good human reasons why God should be finished with the Jews, but there are no divine reasons. And so this passage, I think, forces us to look a little bit at the character of God. And so as we wrap up here this morning, that's what I want to do. Share three things about God, the character of God. First of all, God is undaunted in his faithfulness. Israel may be a disobedient, obstinate people, but God is still there with his outstretched hands of affection and love, a covenantal God who is true to his promises, and he is faithful to those promises. He has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. And the encouraging word for us today is, if God has not rejected Israel, if he's undaunted in his faithfulness to Israel, he's undaunted in his faithfulness to you and to me.
even if we are faithless to him. I love what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Are you encouraged today that if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, that his faithfulness is new every morning, it's great, his mercies flow to us, he loves us with an everlasting love, and there's not a person in this room who deserves it. There's not a person in this world who deserves it. All we like sheep have gone astray. And it seems so often we all turn to our own ways. But our sin has been cast upon him. He's paid for our sins, even the sins we're going to commit 10 years from now. And there's nothing that we can do to get out from under that love of God. He holds us in his hands. He is our good shepherd. And he's enfolded us in, in his loving arms. And even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That is the undaunted faithfulness of a God who is our personal God. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior. Undaunted in faithfulness. As Paul wrote earlier in chapter 9, nothing separates us from the love of God. Nothing. And yet, God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. That leads us to the second thing about God, is that he is uncompromising in his holiness. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Every time we do our own thing and turn our back on God and kind of live for our own self-gratification, we are suppressing the truth of who God is, of, of his love, of his grace to us. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. And even though all discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Oh yeah, God doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. But as a loving father, he will deal with us as his children. And he will take us to the woodshed. And he'll deal with us in his own way, in his own time. Because God is uncompromising in his holiness. But he loves us with an everlasting love and undaunted in his faithfulness to us. This is the grace of God. This is undeserved favor. We don't deserve this kind of treatment. And if you think for one moment that you're good enough to deserve God's goodness and grace, forget it. Get up in the morning, take a look in the mirror and say, I don't deserve God's grace. Because that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. But he's faithful to his word. He loves us with an everlasting love. Yet he will not compromise his holiness. He will discipline us, lovingly shaping us 
so that we can share in his righteousness and holiness. There's a third thing about God that I think this passage shows us, and that is that God is underestimated in his sovereign work of grace. You know, Elijah thought he was all alone. He underestimated God's work. Turn with me to that, that passage for just a moment in 1 Kings chapter 18. You, I think, remember the story? Um, 1 Kings chapter 18, wicked King Ahab has a confrontation with the prophet Elijah, verse 17 of 1 Kings 18. And when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? That's ironic. And Elijah responded, I've not troubled Israel. You have, and your father's house have. Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. And then Elijah puts out a challenge. Verse 19, now, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel and together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And you remember what happened? They come at Mount Carmel and Elijah said, now bring two oxen and you prophets of Baal, you 850 false prophets, take that oxen and put it on an altar and, and you call on your gods, to burn that offering up and, and then I'll take my oxen and I'll put it on my altar and I'll call upon Jehovah God and whoever answers is the true God. And the people thought, hey, that's a great idea. And so they did that. And you remember the, the story that happened, verse 36 of chapter 18, at that time, or at the time of the offering of the eating sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your word. The prophets of Baal had spent hours already calling upon Baal to no avail. Elijah had actually even mocked them. Cry out a little louder. Maybe he's, literally, the implication is maybe he's gone to the bathroom. And they cut themselves and they go through all sorts of contortions and nothing happened. And, and then Elijah prayed this prayer. Show yourself. You're the true God. But before that, he had all the water poured on the altar and, and dug a ditch and all the water was filled. I mean, this thing was soaked to the gill. And in response to Elijah's prayer, the fire came down and the, 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 the offering, the ox is burned up and the water is all licked up and the prophets of Baal are all put to ashes and a great victory, a great victory was had. Except when it's all done, um, Elijah is um, feeling sorry for himself. Verse 9 of chapter 19, he said, he went into a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the kind of Mark Carey inflection. I don't know what, how God would have put it, but I would, I, that's how I would have done it. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah said in verse 10 of chapter 19, I have been very zealous for you, the Lord, God of hosts. 
For the sons of Israel have, have forsaken the covenant, and they've turned down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. <laughs> and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God asks them again in verse 13, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds the same way in verse 14. I've been very zealous for the Lord, so on and so on. They killed your prophets, and, and I alone am left there sick in my life. I'm all alone. God says in verse 18, Yet I have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Grow up, Elijah. Come on, what are you doing here, hiding in a, in a cave? You're underestimating me. You think I've left you alone? There's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee before Baal who've kissed him. Don't underestimate God's sovereign work of grace. There's no question that we're living in increasingly dark days here. No question. The hatred against God's truth, against God's people is growing every day. We're living in in hostile times, times that kill unborn children and traffic young girls and perversions, sexual perversions of all kinds are being glorified and, and taxpayer monies are paying for it. Incivilities in public squares. Man's inhumanity to man abounds. We're living in perilous times, as the Apostle Paul says. And in, in addition to the degradation of our society that seems like rapid pace heading downward, it's, it's, it, the, the church itself is... I mean, how many more Jerry Falwell Juniors do we have? The, the pain that a Robbie Zacharias has in, inflicted the James McDonald's, the Bill Hybels in their fall. Peter said in 1 Peter, it's, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We worry about the world around us? Come on, what's going on in the church? And yet, do you feel like you're somewhat all alone and the evil world is kind of pressing in around us? We huddle up in our little huddles of conservative evangelical Christianity and God is saying, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? God is underestimated. Unborn babies are being rescued by crisis pregnancy centers right here in our own community. Young girls are being saved out of sex trafficking because God's people are working. God is working. Individual believers all around this world are, are taking the opportunities of sharing their faith, and people are coming to faith in Christ. God is working. There's a new church plant down in Shenandoah County. God is working. There's a growing Hispanic community and Bible teaching community right here that we planted five, six years ago. They're about to ordain Two elders in their church. God is working. Um, a healthcare worker who shares their, their faith to a patient who is gripped with fear. A law enforcement personnel sharing with another law enforcement personnel of the hope of Jesus. 
That's happening all over. A parent who leads their children in devotions at night in prayer. A family that expresses forgiveness to one another and, a, and a, another marriage is, is, is saved. It's just happening all over. God is working. A second grader who, who witnesses to his teacher about the, the truthfulness of, of the Bible. It happened this week. God is working. Um, lives are being changed. Don't underestimate the sovereign working of God's grace. All around, there's movements of God that are working. God is working whether we see it or not. And in discouragement, Elijah said, I alone, alone am left. And God is saying, are you kidding? Trust me. Trust me. I've got it covered. And he's unfolding his marvelous plan that's going to be revealed one day. And one day when we are all gathered in heaven and we're going to hear the stories that old hymn it says, the marvelous story saved by grace and the redeemed of the Lord will say so as we bow before the throne of grace. Do not think for one moment that God doesn't have this world covered. As someone once said, I've read the last chapter of the book. We win. We win. And if God's relationship with Israel teaches us anything, it's to teach us that we have hope. It invites us to be encouraged because of the undaunted faithfulness of God and his uncompromising holiness to deal with sin and his underestimated sovereign work that is going on right now in this world. It was Isaiah who wrote in the dark times of the 8th century B.C., those that wait upon the Lord will gain new strength and they will run and not get tired and they will walk and not grow weary. Why? Because of him. God's in charge. He's faithful. And again, if the story of Israel teaches us anything, it should teach us we have hope. He's faithful to us too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of your faithfulness to Israel. Still your people, that one day as we'll see at the end of chapter 11 and the next week or two, uh, your plan is going to be fulfilled. I pray, Father, though, that today we, your people, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, will not grow weary in well-doing. We will not get overwhelmed by the things we hear on the news and the the atrocities, the godlessness that seems to run rampant, as if things are spiraling out of control. Our God is in the heavens, sovereign and mighty. And even though, Father, sometimes we may feel all alone, 
you call us to look around. Give us eyes to see, Father. 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. And you're mightily working in people's hearts. Quietly, softly, tenderly, you continue to work and fulfill your plans. May we wait upon you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.